0: annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.
1: Welcome to the history of the Cold War podcast, episode 12, part three, the 1948 election. So last episode, we examined the South's reaction to Truman's embrace of civil rights and their threat to run a third-slash-fourth-party candidate. We also looked at Henry Wallace and the progressive campaign for the presidency. We examined the battle for the Republican nomination and Dewey's victory. In today's show, we're going to examine what was going on with the Democrats and their convention. We will look at the rise of the Dixiecrats in the South as a fourth party, the election itself, and the aftermath what happened to all those characters, sort of my 30 for 30 or where are they now post-election aftermath, and we talk a little about what this election meant for the nation. Despite all the bad press about Truman losing any future election against Dewey, he was still strong enough in the party to to lock the nomination. There was a faction of the party that had tried to draft Eisenhower to run, but again he refused to run for the presidency. They also attempted to approach Supreme Court just, Justice William O. Douglas, but he too refused to run, which left the majority of the Democratic Party with no other choice but to back the president. Truman and his team did hire, though, J. Leonard Reinish, a radio strategist to help him with his speeches, and the famed father of, of public relations, Edward Bernays, who we spoke about in Episode 7 of Capitalism. Truman wasn't very receptive to these image men as he preferred to speak off the cuff. Truman struggled to read from his script for the simple fact that he had bad eyesight. Besides, even if he had 20-20 vision, he would have never compared to FDR, similar today to how Hillary will never be a great speaker like Obama or her husband, Bill Clinton. One of the biggest problems facing the Democrats was lack of cash, so Truman planned a two-weeks' worth of speeches to raise money from donors. Truman decided to make the whole trip by train. The President's train was 16 cars long, equipped by a special Pullman car called the Ferdinand Magellan. It had been originally used by FDR and was nicely furnished, with a king-sized bed and a suite with a shower, a private dining room, a lounge for poker and a, a bourbon, a kitchen, and a platform on the back for speeches. The train also included a special press car with typewriters, tables and chairs, dining rooms, and a public address system with microphones on the top of the rear cars of the train. The train had 125 passengers, including the president's wife, Bess, and daughter, Margaret. Eighteen White House staffers, Secret Service, Signal Corps, and reporters. In all, there were 59 American, one British, one French, and two Chinese reporters. The trip hit the western states according to the Clifford Rowe plan. Thousands came out to see the president speak. 55,000 packed Berkeley Stadium. L.A., nearly a million people lined the route between the railroad station and the Ambassador Hotel to see him. Numerous Hollywood stars came out to see and donate money, which is not too different from today as the president always messes up traffic here in Southern California when he comes to get money. Despite this impressive showing, most people still assumed Truman would lose the election. Attacking the congressional Republicans as the do-nothing Congress couldn't mask over the splits in the Democratic Party or the fact that the Democratic political machines in cities like New York and Boston were in a state of decline. By the time they reached the convention, many of the delegates felt that they were attending a funeral. Unlike the Republican convention a few weeks before, the Democratic convention was sweltering, with the convention floor reaching temperatures of 109 at points. Over the entrance to the convention, the Democrats had a large papier-mâché donkey. It was supposed to to belch smoke from its nostrils to make it look fierce. Instead, the smoke came out of its rear, giving it the impression that it was farting. The Democratic platform was the big battle everyone was waiting for. The southern states wanted to keep the 1944 plank that outlined the right of racial and religious minorities to have the rights to life and political rights granted by the Constitution. However, northern and liberal Democrats argued that they needed to go further to retain the black vote, especially after the strong civil rights plank of the Republican Party. The old plank was voted down successfully by the liberals and northerners, but could they adopt a new civil rights plank? Herbert Humphrey made a bold stand calling for a much more progressive and liberal rights plank and delivering a moving speech on the subject. In the end, it was a very close vote, but the Democrats adopted a liberal civil rights platform in line with Truman's wishes. The Alabama and Mississippi delegations walked out of the convention, waving the Confederate flag as the hall erupted in boos and hisses. Most of the Southerners remained in the hall, though. The Southerners, in opposition to the civil rights plank in the party platform, put forward Richard Russell of Georgia to challenge Truman for the nomination. Russell, however, was easily defeated on the first ballot. The voting had taken longer than expected, and everyone was suffering in the heat, as the temperature on the floor had reached 103. After Truman won the nomination, they dropped a floral Liberty Bell, which was supposed to release pigeons into the hall as, quote, doves of peace. The heat in the arena and inside the Liberty Bell had killed many of the pigeons, though. As the bell opened to release the pigeons, their dead bodies fell into the delegates. Some of the pigeons that survived flew up into the fans by accident and died as well. Others flew up and began to poop on the delegates below. Sam Rayborn could be heard on TV and radio yelling, quote, get those God damn pigeons out of here, close quote, Meanwhile, in the South, the Southern Democrats reconvened. The Dixiecrats argued that they were not a new party but the legitimate representatives of the Southern Democratic Party, but for all practical purposes, they were essentially a new political party. The Dixiecrats held their convention in Birmingham on paper, the twelve states of the former Confederate States of America plus Kentucky were represented. In reality, though, only Mississippi and Alabama sent real delegations. No one arrived from Kentucky or North Carolina, and and the Virginia delegation was composed of four college students. There was, however, a number of racists who attended the convention with some very fiery rhetoric. Said one delegate, the federal government is working to, quote, reduce us to a status of a mongrel, inferior race, to crush us with imprisonment. Our leadership thereby kill our hopes, our aspirations, our future, and the future of our children, close quote. Strom Thurmond, of course, won the nomination to lead the Dixiecrats in the November election. The Dixiecrats knew that he couldn't win the election, but they did have a plan to defeat Truman and stop civil rights. If the Dixiecrats could get enough votes, they could win enough electoral votes to throw the election to the House of Representatives. For those of you who might not be familiar, if no one candidate wins a majority of Electoral College of Votes, the election goes to the House of Representatives, where the House decides the president via a vote. Therefore, the Southerners hoped to throw the election to the House and be kingmakers, bargaining with the candidates to end the civil rights in favor of their votes in the House. As crazy as the plan sounds, the presidential election had gone to the House three times in American history, in 1801, 1825, and 1877, so it was a long shot, but within the realm of possibility. One of the biggest challenges for the Dixiecrats was money. Volunteers made calls, organized luncheons, dinners, and distributed buttons. These activities generated some income, but in the desperately poor South, it was literally nickels and dimes. However, Texas oilmen were willing to step up and write checks to fund the state's rights cause. They had been displeased by the federal government trying to regulate the coastal tidal lands of Louisiana, Texas, and Mississippi. In many southern states like Georgia and North Carolina, the Dixiecrats couldn't even get on the ballot for the upcoming election as many southern Democrats remained loyal to Truman. Dixiecrat events were also targeted by progressive party protesters, where the situation often turned violent. By Labor Day, three states were committed to the states' rights cause, South Carolina, Alabama, and Mississippi. Ironically, these were the first three states to secede from the Union in 1861. It was also ironic as these states had the highest concentration of blacks in the nation. By October, though, it was clear that the Dixiecrats had very little money and little appeal outside of their core states. In Tennessee and Georgia, the party commanded roughly 15% of the vote, and in Texas, less than 10%. Wherever Thurman went, reporters turned out, but the press was generally unfavorable to the Dixiecrat cause. Most editors saw the movement as poor, ignorant, illiterate, white trash. They thought the movement was a cynical attempt to manipulate racism for political gain. The New Deal had been accomplished by the rise of Southern liberalism and progressivism, and many saw these new Southern liberals reject the segregationist, racist slant of the Dixiecrats. As the race wound down, Southern newspapers, like everyone else, thought Dewey would win in a landslide although it was reasoned that even if Dewey won, the Deep South would show its power within the Democratic Party by ending the party's support for civil rights. I want to take a quick break here and thank you again for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to share the show on social media or tell your friends to check us out or to give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. Of course, this show takes money to bring to you, I will be organizing my own black tie dinner event to fund the podcast with a typical 100,000 cost of admission, which comes with a picture of myself. We will be holding the event at Will Smith's house, and George Clooney, Scarlett Johansson, The Rock, and Matt Damon will be in attendance as well. So if you're interested in attending, reach out to, to me via the website. But in all seriousness, if you'd like to financially support us, Support us uh, through Patreon on our website. Any donation is greatly appreciated. The website is www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Now back to the show. By early August, Dewey was ahead in every poll. Walls had fallen to just 3%. And in the South, the Dixiecrats had achieved 14% support amongst the voters. With their large lead, the Republicans stuck to their strategy of staying safe while Truman went on the attack, aggressively campaigning in the West. Dewey did go on a tour of the West in his own train, the Victory Special, in which he visited 13 states. Dewey started to lose ground, though, amongst farmers. Dewey had tried to craft the image of being a farmer by buying a farm in New York, but few Midwesterners saw him as a farmer, and farmers were worried about low food prices and the loss of government subsidies, and Dewey wasn't clear about if he supported farm subsidies or not. Truman, on the other hand, was very clear in his support of the farmers. For weeks, Truman had hammered the Republican Congress for their inability to support the farmers. Truman often went off script, speaking to gathered crowds, playing fast and loose with the facts, and comparing Dewey and the Republicans to fascists and Nazis. Granted, a newspaper man might write a story from time to time, but this was the days before TV, and it wasn't recorded at these gatherings. Economically, farmers were hurting. Illinois corn had fallen from 2.29 a bushel in June to 96 cents by October. Secretly as well, the Democrats had the government stop buying surplus food the last 6 weeks of the campaign to push the prices even lower to hurt farmers. Truman also campaigned in Texas. He needed to secure the Lone Star State from the states rights movement and needed Texas's 23 electoral votes to win the election. Furthermore, Truman called Congress back for a special session to move his agenda forward. The move was pure political theater. Truman knew that they wouldn't pass any of his bills, but he wanted to reinforce the image of Congress doing nothing to the American people. Dewey begged Taft and the Republican senators to pass anything to look like they were reasonable and responsible, but Taft refused and played into Truman's hand. The Congress eventually recessed without passing any significant legislation. By October, everyone still thought Truman would lose. In a Newsweek poll, 50 of the nation's most prominent newspaper editors and columnists believed that Dewey would win in November. Dewey was such the favorite that not even bookies would take bets on Truman winning. The Chicago Tribune predicted a blowout, with, with Dewey even breaking into the Democratic South, winning Virginia, Florida, Tennessee, Texas, and even Missouri, the president's home state. Life magazine featured a full-page photo of Dewey and his wife with the caption, quote, the next president. However, the final Gallup poll in late October showed the race in a dead heat, with Truman at 44.5% and Dewey at 49.5%. Dewey's 17% advantage in late September had tumbled to 9% in mid-October, and the runaway race had turned into a photo finish. The election day had generally good weather, but many were expected to remain home. Many believed that the election was virtually decided in favor of Dewey. Many Americans were not passionate about either candidate, nor were many closely following the events. Good economic times for the first time since the late 1920s also meant that many Americans were content and happy. Happy people are harder to get to the polls than angry people. Meanwhile, the candidates waited for the results. Truman took a bath and ate a sandwich and went to bed. Dewey stayed up all night following the returns. Downstairs from Dewey in the ballroom of the Roosevelt Hotel, the Republican elite in tuxedos and evening gowns awaited Dewey's victory speech. By midnight, they realized something was wrong. By dawn, the unthinkable had happened, and they had been defeated yet again. It was the greatest upset in American electoral history. Truman had won with some 24 million votes to Dewey's 21 million. He had captured some 49.5 percent of the vote, winning 303 electoral votes. In Congress, the Democrats retook both the House and the Senate. In the 1948 landslide, both Lyndon Johnson and Herbert Humphrey, both future big hitters in the Democratic Party and the nation's future, were elected to the Senate. The press was correct in their prediction of a low turnout. Only 49% of eligible voters had turned out to vote. In contrast to voter turnout in 2012 was 57%. The Dixiecrats did make a strong showing, though carrying four states, Louisiana, South Carolina, Alabama, and Mississippi, with roughly a million votes, the last time a third party would win a state in a presidential election. However, despite the hopes of Dewey and Thurman, most of the South remained solidly Democratic, as Truman won 69% of the overall Southern vote. In large Southern cities like Atlanta and Richmond, whites voted 46 to 34% Democrat over Dewey. Truman could not have won without Southern support, but the cracks in the Democratic Party had deepened long before Johnson had become president. The Progressives did as bad as everyone thought they were going to do. Wallace won only a million votes, mostly in his home state of New York, against the 24 million of Truman. However, Wallace's ideas would go on to play an important part of the Cold War in modern American history. This new radicalism reaffirmed American belief in liberty, but in the process turned it against the nation itself, postulating the moral equivalency between the United States and the Soviet Union and the belief that international opinion was a better guide to U.S. foreign policy than Wilsonian principle or realist machinations. Wallace's ideas became the foundation of the radical leftist critique of the United States that existed throughout the Cold War and in some ways into our own time. The other forecasts were so wrong, it left the professionals speechless. The reporters who covered the election were dumbfounded that they could have been so blind to what was going on. Truman had pulled off the impossible. Despite a split in his own party that saw two factions leave and his own low approval ratings, he still won. Moreover, Truman was swimming against the tide of history. Only twice in American history had one party controlled the presidency for five terms. Truman had won big in the farm states of of Iowa, Wisconsin, and Ohio. No Republican has ever been elected president without winning Ohio. He also won big in agricultural states like California, which was a big surprise as Dewey was expected to win California, Iowa, and Ohio. Dewey and the reporters had also miscalculated how many businesses and city voters were connected to the farm vote as well. Truman was also successful in winning black, Catholic, and Jewish voters in in the northern cities. Moreover, his tactic of framing Dewey as as an American Mussolini was effective as it scared a significant number of people to vote Democrat. He was probably one of the first people to use the Hitler political strategy. Today, we, we see it used repeatedly, where people and parties accuse each other of being fascist or Nazis. Moreover, Truman's painting of Wallace as a communist helped him with the Irish Catholic vote which helped him win New York, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. Ultimately, in 1948, Americans wanted a government that protected them from their two greatest fears, another Great Depression and another World War, and they thought Truman was the best man for that job. Truman supported the New Deal, which most Americans had come to trust and was standing up to the communists overseas. Dewey seemed willing to stand up to the Soviets, but domestically they were afraid of the Republicans deregulating the economy. Wallace seemed unwilling to stand up to the Soviets and wanted to follow a path of appeasement, which had failed miserably with the Nazis in the 1930s. Moreover, many of his domestic programs that many Americans might have supported were tainted by his embrace of communist followers who the American people simply didn't trust. The spirit of the New Deal was reaffirmed in 1948 and would continue for another 20 years into the 1960s as Johnson's Great Society. 1948 also began the process by which the Democrats abandoned the South and embraced urban blacks and the civil rights movement. The election also solidified the foreign policy consensus of the Republicans and Democrats that would last into the 1960s. Truman went on to be president for another four years. If you're interested in learning more about Truman, I suggest you check out episode six, where we give a little bio about him. Dewey was shocked by the outcome and never publicly spoke about it. He reluctantly ran for re-election and won another term as governor of New York. In 1956, he retired from public service and spent his remaining years in private practice as a lawyer. Dewey, in retrospect, should not have rested on his laurels but attacked Truman back, battling for the farm vote and taking a stronger stand on civil rights to retain more of the black vote. Dewey did have a strong track record when it came to civil rights as governor of New York. He had appointed a number of blacks to high positions, and he had received the endorsement of several black newspapers. In 1942, he had carried Harlem to become governor, and he had introduced New York's anti-discrimination measures. He had the potential to dig deeply into the black vote. Many speculate that he had hoped to win some southern states, as Hoover had in 1928, so he played it safe by not addressing the civil rights issue. Nevertheless, he never campaigned in the South to try and capitalize on Southern white votes. By not moving in either direction on the issue, he attracted neither supporters of civil rights nor supporters for states' rights. Although, to be fair, the Chicago Tribune had predicted that he would win Virginia, Tennessee, Florida, and Texas. In the end, Truman won 77% of the black vote, and the black vote was vital to Truman in, in victories in Ohio, Illinois, and California. If Dewey had been able to carry 20-30% to 30% of the black vote, especially in those northern cities, he would have won the election. In later life, Dewey became a respected elder statesman amongst the Republican Party with sage political advice. Dewey died of a massive heart attack in March 1971. Thurman ran again in 1954 as a Democrat for the Senate, but without the support of the party. He won election as the first person to win an election as a write-in candidate. In the Senate, he gained a reputation for his dogged opposition to civil rights, holding the record for the longest continuous filibuster of 24 hours and 18 minutes against the 1957 Civil Rights Act. For those of you not familiar, senators in the Senate have the right to speak about a bill as long as they wish. So with a senator speaking, you can't move on to other business like voting. So that means Thurman continuously stood and spoke this entire period without using the restroom. During this time, Thurman read Gibbons' rise and fall of the Roman Empire on the Senate floor, along with a number of other historical documents, to block the bill's passage as long as possible. In 1964, Thurman changed parties to the Republicans and delivered South Carolina to Barry Goldwater. Four years later, he did the same for Richard Nixon. Thurman was re-elected to the Senate for six terms. Despite his opposition to civil rights, Thurman became very well-liked by many black constituents, Thurman hired numerous black staffers, supported seven black colleges, and received more of the black vote than any other Republican senator in the South. Thurman served in the Senate until, his, until the age of 100 and died in June 2003, five months after leaving office. Harold Simpson, the young governor of Minnesota, would never recover politically from his beatdown from Dewey in the Oregon debate. He ran again for the presidential nomination in 1952, 1964, 68, 76, 80, 88, 92, 96, and 2000, but was never able to win the nomination. In between those losses, he managed to lose two bids for the Senate. When he tried to run again for governor of Minnesota in 1982, he was defeated. Not giving up, he ran for governor of Pennsylvania twice and lost both times. He even lost a bid for a House seat as well in Minnesota. Like the proverbial Icarus, he flew too close to the sun and would never again achieve such heights. Henry Wallace, bitter in defeat, retreated from public life and resigned as leader of the Progressive Party in 1950. Ironically, Wallace supported Truman's decision to defend South Korea during the Korean War. He did, however, oppose American involvement in Vietnam. Wallace died in 1965. The Progressive Party didn't last long without Wallace's leadership and collapsed in 1952. 1948 was the last election that saw politicians use trains to campaign. It was also the last election not to be dominated by TV. I want to thank you for listening to a History of the Cold War podcast, episode 12, part 3, the 1948 election. Make sure to join us for our next episode, October the 1st, where we'll be taking a a short break from the narrative to take a closer look at the lives of two Cold War figures— James Forrestal, U.S. Secretary of Defense, and Molotov, the Soviet foreign minister. Both of these figures were bureaucrats who rose to the top of their respective political and economic systems and yet fell from grace. So join us again October the 1st to hear this interesting story. Also, don't forget if you enjoy the show to let your friends know about us. If you don't have a lot of friends into history but still want to help us, give us a positive review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to to for the show. As always, of course, if you want to make a financial contribution to support the show, visit our website and support us via Patreon at our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Any donation size is, is accepted and appreciated, and if you have a moment, fill out our survey there to help us bring you a better show.
0: annual membership fee applies participating locations only see club for details at planet fitness you can get down with your judgment free self join for only one dollar down ten dollars a month no commitment now through january 15th planet fitness has cardio weights and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of new year's champagne only one dollar down ten dollars a month no commitment now through january 15th join in club or online at planetfitness.com planet fitness the judgment free zone Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations.
1: Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.